This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. All right. It looks like we have a very full house and everybody's excited to get started. So good evening. I'm Lynn Slattery and I represent the Office of Development here at RAND. And it's a pleasure to welcome everybody tonight. Understanding the Korea crisis. After months of insults, threats, and mutual hostility, President Donald Trump has agreed to meet North Korean leader Kim Jong-un this spring. Negotiations have just begun over timing, location, and terms of what would be the first ever meeting between a sitting U.S. president and the North Korean leader. We're very fortunate, as Natalie said, to have one of America's leading experts on Korea here to discuss the latest developments. Bruce Bennett is a senior international defense researcher at RAND, and he's the author of Preparing North Korean Elites for Unification and Preparing for the Possibility of a North Korean Collapse. He's visited South Korea more than 100 times and, in fact, just returned Saturday. So, Bruce, please come on up. We're very eager to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm not particularly prone to a podium, so I'm going to walk around a little bit and uh, hopefully get to see you all. And indeed, I just got back from Korea on Saturday afternoon. I was in Korea because one of my RAND colleagues, Ambassador Jim Dobbins, in our Washington office, had the foresight a year ago to say, you know, we ought to better understand the possibility for a peace treaty with North Korea. He proposed that research. It was approved. We have been formulating what such a treaty might look like, its benefits, its risks. And then I was in Korea last week to talk with government officials and other experts about what did they think? What ideas did they think were appropriate? What would be good? What would be bad? And what is risky? And so I'll be able to talk a little bit about that tonight. And much of what I'm going to suggest to you is in the context of, so why do we have a problem? And what can we potentially do about it? So with that as a starting base, I I should say one other thing. You shouldn't confuse me with a traditional Korean analyst. I don't speak Korean. I speak Japanese, actually, but not Korean. Um, I don't because I was mid-career before I did any work on Korea. I was working for the director of net assessment in the Pentagon, building a very large wargaming system where we could look at major war up through even nuclear weapon use and ask what might happen. And in 1990, the Secretary of Defense came to him and said, I want you to do a Korea balance study. Now, all the work we'd been doing was on the NATO central front. And so to adjust to Korea, we had to make some major changes. Korean terrain is not at all like European terrain. And the threats are, in many ways, quite different. And so I'd started my first work, made my first trip to Korea in May of 1990. And as... uh, Lynn said, I've been to Korea now 113 or 114 or so times since then. I was lucky when I started working on Korea. My father-in-law 
was a professor at the U.S. National Defense University. His specialty happened to be Korea. <laughs> Always loved my father-in-law. He's great. Um, and so as I started working on Korea, he started introducing me to his colleagues. He'd been the first exchange professor to the Korean National Defense University uh, just a few weeks after my wife and I were married. So uh, he introduced me to his colleagues and now I work very well with both the Korean side and the American side. So last week I saw, of course, our commander in Korea, General Brooks, and some of his staff, but I was also at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, I was at other governmental organizations. I met with several retired uh, South Korean generals, former JCS chairman, former deputy commanders of the Combined Command, and I have quite a few interesting perspectives as a result. So let's proceed into the substance. If you look at the history in Korea, as shown here, North Korea tested their first theater ballistic missiles in 1984. But during the period of Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of our current leader, they really didn't test a whole lot of missiles, many years without any. Then Kim Jong-il came in, and he initially promised he wasn't going to test missiles. And so there were only a couple of years where he did really much of any testing. But the other thing he started was, of course, the nuclear testing, the nuclear weapons. And he was also testing ICBMs. Now, we'll get into why that's all relevant in a bit. And then he dies in late 2011. Kim Jong-un, his son, takes over at that time. And if you look at the history since then... Things are very, very different. Now, you could say, well, he's just really concerned about maintaining control of the country. Uh, but his missile tests, his nuclear tests go well beyond that. And we'll suggest some details on that. All right, so, key event. Last year in March, the U.S. did a major military exercise with our Korean allies, it's called Key Resolve, and another part of that is called Full Eagle. Every year when the U.S. does that exercise with our ally, the North Koreans are furious at us because they think we're preparing to invade them. Now, if you listen to the news, remember, North Korea starts their winter training exercise to invade South Korea in December. By March, they are most prepared, as they're ending the exercise, they're most prepared to invade the South. So we do an exercise in March so that in case they do decide to roll from their exercise into an invasion, we're ready. And they're angry at us, really? But that's what they say. So last year they said, we are so furious at you. We're going to launch four ballistic missiles, and they launched them on this 1,000-kilometer arc. That's the range of the missile, basically putting them up here and then further north. Three of the four went into the Japanese exclusive economic zone. Now, think about it for a minute. They're furious at South Korea and the U.S., and they're launching missiles at Japan. There's a disconnect there. 
Now, what did they say to explain it? Well, they said, eh, well, you know, we're firing as if we're firing at the American military bases in Japan. Except, if you look at the six airfields the U.S. has in Japan, the missiles launched from that location would only cover one of those six bases. And they're not a little bit off from the others. They're a long way off from the others. So you got to say, there's something wrong in what they're saying here. And that is key to understanding what's been happening. Just before this happens, in February of last year, Kim Jong-un has his older brother killed in Malaysia. You'll remember the event. He was in the airport. Ladies put their hands on his face with a banned chemical weapon called VX. Now, so you understand this chemical VX, it takes right around about a tenth of a drop of VX on the cheek to kill you. So this is really potent stuff. Now, you might say, well, okay, but the ladies put it on his face with the palms of their hands. How did they get away with it? Well, this was a chemical developed by the British. They initially developed it as a pesticide. A British pesticide company developed it. When they started spraying it, it wasn't too good for the people spraying it. And so they turned it over to the British military. Now, when the British military got it, what would you do? Well, this was the mid-1950s. Well, obviously, you do extensive human testing, right? <laughs> now, they weren't trying to kill people with it. They were only trying to see how much the chemical would suppress cholinesterase, the chemical used to control the body, the nervous system. And they were going for a maximum of 70% suppression, which didn't make people too happy, but at least they could see what the effect was. That chemical on the palm of your hands is 25 times less lethal than on your cheek. So those ladies had it on the palm of their hands, a tenth of a drop roughly, put it on his cheek, go wash their hands, and they're fine, and he's dead. Now, they did that. What happened after that? Six days later, China cuts off North Korea's coal exports to China. In 2016, North Korea's coal exports to China were 60% of their exports, dollar value-wise. So I'm sorry, let's see, 40%. You got the numbers wrong. 40%. 40% of their hard currency earnings was that coal. And China says, no more. Stop. That's a huge hit on North Korea. So North Korea does what they typically do. They do something like launching missiles. So how do we understand the situation? You understand the situation by saying, North Korea almost never directly criticizes China. But from where they fired the missile, if you run that thousand kilometer range around in the other direction, it covers over half of the biggest Chinese cities, including Shanghai, the big Shanghai industrial area, Beijing. And obviously the North Koreans were telling the Chinese, okay, I mean, you may be angry at us, you're going to hurt us with coal, but we could also hurt you. So, 
we hear a lot that there is a strong relationship between the North Koreans and the Chinese. They're allies. Don't believe it for a minute. When Kim Jong-un came into office, according to the senior defectors I have talked to, he ordered his military that they were not to exercise with the Chinese military. They were not to plan with the Chinese military. They weren't even to talk to the Chinese military. And not much of an alliance if you don't even talk with each other. So the fact that China has been more willing over time to take action against North Korea shouldn't be surprising and helps us understand this kind of situation. So what else has North Korea been doing? Well, North Korea has tested six nuclear weapons thus far, all in underground tests. The initial test around a kiloton, that's the Hiroshima weapon was around 10 kilotons. So they were gradually working up to roughly the Hiroshima range in kind of the middle of these two. And then last September, they do one which is probably in the 150 to 250 kiloton range. That is a big change. Makes a huge amount of difference. Now, what is a kiloton? A kiloton is the equivalent to a thousand tons of TNT. A thousand tons. And we're talking about 250,000 tons of TNT at the high end. So how much difference does that make? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But the thing which is concerning, of course, is this shows the time in between those tests. The time between the first four tests, eh, three to four years, roughly speaking. But now, less than a year between the last two. So, a lot of concern. People will say, well, what's President Trump concerned about? You know, I mean, they've had nuclear weapons for years. They've been building missiles for years. What's the big deal? Well, big deal number one is a much bigger explosion Big deal number two, as we'll talk about in a minute, they're now testing ICBMs that could hit the U.S. And big deal number three, they are moving quickly and improving significantly. All right. So what happens if you use a nuclear weapon? Well, this is a picture of downtown Seoul. The South Korean presidential residence is a little bit up above the S of Seoul there. So if a 10 kiloton weapon, roughly Hiroshima size, goes off, you have 110,000 people, roughly speaking, killed, another, oh, 250,000 or so injured. That's a lot. Now that's more than happened with Hiroshima because today Seoul's a whole lot more dense in terms of population than Hiroshima was. If you've ever been to Seoul, high-rise apartments... They're all over the place. So that's what would happen with that size weapon. What happens with a 250 kiloton weapon? That much bigger weapon is incredibly more dangerous and damaging. That's a lot of people who would be affected. So that's a part of the concern of the current U.S. administration. Now, Nuclear weapons aren't the only North Korean threat. If you take a look and you use chemical or biological weapons, 
the uncertainty range in terms of how much damage would be done is much broader. Chemical weapons, biological weapons, usually spread by air, very dependent upon the wind direction, its speed, the atmospheric conditions. So we don't know exactly what it would be, but you do know that these kind of numbers at the bottom end of the range are roughly 9-11, right? And it could be much bigger than that. And people will say, yeah, but how do you ever get a ton of chemical weapons into Seoul? Well, North Korea has a multiple rocket launcher. It carries 22 rockets in the standard version. Six of those launchers make one battery. And one battery can deliver two and a half tons of chemicals. And they only have about 30 or so of those batteries within range of Seoul. So the one-ton estimate is way at the low end of what they could potentially deliver. Now, I'm simply trying to illustrate this is a country that has a lot of very dangerous capabilities. It's something we need to be concerned about and doing something about. The other part, though, is what about their attitude? Well, back in 1993, there was the first nuclear crisis with North Korea. During that crisis, Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current leader, called together his senior military people. And he said, if we fight the Americans over our nuclear program and we lose, what do we do? Now, his military guys were all smart enough to know that was a really good time to keep their mouths shut. But his son, Kim Jong-il, the father of the current leader, spoke up and he said, if we lose, I will be sure to destroy the earth. What good is the earth without North Korea? That'll give you an idea of the culture of North Korea. This is posted, according to defectors I've talked to, in multiple places in Pyongyang. It is a part of the philosophy. And notice two things about it. Number one... They're not going to destroy the earth with rifles and tanks. They're really not even going to destroy it with nuclear weapons and biological weapons, but they could cause a whole lot of damage. And number two, they said the earth. They did not exclude China or Russia. And so North Korea, if it goes down could well try to reach out and not just target us, but China, Russia, of course, South Korea and Japan. This could be a very broad situation. Okay. Now, what about these ICBMs? Last July, North Korea fired two missiles for long-range effects. Now, they didn't fire them out over the Pacific they fired them almost straight up in the air, and they came down only a few hundred kilometers away from where they were launched. But if you take what the range of those missiles would be if they were fired on a better trajectory, the first one had about a 6,500-kilometer range. That would allow it to cover Alaska. That is, by definition, an ICBM, because the definition of an ICBM is any missile that will travel over 5,500 kilometers. But most people looked at that and they said, well, they can't hurt us. I mean, here we are in L.A., not even close. 
Then at the end of July, they fired a missile that had more like a 9,000-kilometer range, apparently. The problem for that one was it looked like it only had about a 200-kilogram warhead. It was probably the same missile fired earlier in the month, but with a much smaller warhead, which meant it was too small a warhead for a nuclear weapon produced by North Korea. And so most people sat back, experts, and said, ah, no big deal yet. Then in November last year, they fired a missile which had a roughly 13,000-kilometer range. It had two of the engines that each of the missiles in July had only one of. So much longer range, could deliver a nuclear weapon. Now, in theory, they can cover the U.S. Now, of course, they don't, we don't know that they have a warhead that can survive reentry. That's a difficult task. We don't know how accurate they would be. We don't know the reliability of the system. Those are all issues still undetermined. But now I think you get a sense for why President Trump would be saying, no more of this, we've got to stop it. We've got to bring this to an end. So, okay, why is North Korea doing this? What's their problem? Back during the Cold War in the 50s, you'll remember that the Soviets had conventional force superiority. That meant that if they went from East Germany and invaded West Germany, we believed that we couldn't stop them with conventional weapons. Instead, we would be forced to use nuclear weapons to stop them. Now, during that time, many of the exercises we did, we'd use nuclear weapons in the exercise, you know, simulating that we were doing that, and we'd stop the Soviet forces according to the computer models, and everybody would go home feeling great. We stopped the Soviets. The problem was people realized as the Soviet missile systems developed that the Soviets weren't going to stop at that. They were going to be firing missiles potentially at the U.S. in retaliation to that. And so... Eventually, as Charles de Gaulle became the leader of France, he said, you know, I'm not sure the Americans are going to be prepared to trade New York for Paris. Because, in essence, that might have been what we were doing. So what happened? France developed their own nuclear weapons. They left the military alliance of NATO. They decoupled France from the rest of NATO. And that is exactly the kind of thing that Kim Jong-un is trying to do with Korea today. They're trying to break the U.S.-South Korean alliance to convince us that, hey, if North Korea takes out Seoul, oh well, are we prepared to trade San Francisco for Seoul is the question. And I think, again, the administration's attitude is, don't even want to go there. I want to get rid of this threat before I ever have to deal with that question. Okay, so what's Kim Jong-un really up to? He has argued again and again and again that he needs nuclear weapons to deter the United States, to convince us that we shouldn't invade him. Now, he does that in part because he likes making us the scapegoat. 
North Korean nursery school children are taught how to bayonet Americans because the Americans are their eternal enemy. And whenever anything goes wrong in North Korea, it's of course because the Americans did it. The Americans caused that problem. You can't eat. Well, the Americans aren't giving us the food we need. That has been the philosophy. So he needed nuclear weapons to deter an American attack. But the question is, is he interested in more than that? Is he also interested in unification of Korea under North Korean control? Now, you might say, wait a minute. South Korea is twice as big population-wise. GDP per capita is about 15 to 20 times as big. How could North Korea take over South Korea? Well, I think Kim Jong-un is looking at nuclear weapons and saying, by 2030, I'd like to have 200 nuclear weapons and 30 ICBMs and be able to turn to South Korea and say, surrender or else. And turn to the U.S. and say, you stay out or else. And at that point in time, what are we going to be prepared to trade? Now, that has been the traditional objective of North Korea. A lot of people have glossed over that objective. But that's pretty much what Kim Jong-un said in his New Year's Day address, which is his State of the Union address this year. He used the word reunification a dozen times. And he wasn't talking about South Korean-style economic reunification. But he's not ready for that yet. And that, again, is why we would want to call a halt to his activity. So what does he need in terms of capability? Well, you remember during the Cold War, we used to talk a lot about assured destruction. In order to deter the Soviets, we said, if we could take out a significant percentage of the Soviet cities and population, their industry and population, the Soviets would never attack us. They'd know that was suicide. And so we defined an assured destruction level of capability for nuclear weapons that allowed us to put some reasonable bounds on capabilities. So I changed and took this to a North Korean perspective of what they could do with the weapons they're now testing. The red line shows how many people they could kill with different numbers of nuclear weapons. The blue is the co combined injuries and fatalities. These are the serious injuries. Right now, North Korea's numbers of nuclear weapons are generally postulated at being somewhere between 15 and 60. North Korea hides everything. We really don't know what they've got. But those are the numbers that are usually talked about. And I would argue, if North Korea has 10 nuclear weapons... They could kill 3 million people, cause a total of 10 million casualties. That's a pretty good assured destruction level. I'm not going to attack North Korea if I'm going to suffer that much damage. So they really don't need more than about 10 nuclear weapons for survival, which is likely less than what they have today. If they're looking for more than that, which they are, he said this year in his State of the Union address, He's pushing forward to completely increase the numbers. Then his objective is really coercion, force, maybe even invasion of the South. All right, so with that in mind then, 
How do we rein in North Korea's nuclear weapon program? How do we get it under control? Well, the first thing you realize is you got two basic alternatives. We've heard a lot in this country about military attacks to take out the North Korean nuclear forces and missile forces. The problem is they're located in lots of locations, and quite truthfully, we don't know where they all are. You know, you can't take something out that you can't locate. And they're very good at hiding those things. The alternative is some form of negotiation, that we get North Korea agree to reduce their capabilities. It's not a guarantee. They've been very good at cheating on past negotiations. But it gets us closer than doing nothing. So what's part of negotiations? Well, I would argue that if you want to get a good negotiated agreement, you got to put some real pressure on the North Koreans. You know, their style is to take as much as they can out of any negotiation. And we've got to be prepared to do things that they're going to find pretty disagreeable if we want to get a reasonable outcome. What do we know about that? In 2015, North Korea set up a landmine in the demilitarized zone. They detonated the landmine when two South Korean soldiers approached it, were trying to check it out, took off their legs. South Koreans, furious, they turned on propaganda broadcasts, which had been turned off by treaty for since 2004. Now, you have to understand, most of the North Korean soldiers up along the demilitarized zone, these are not, you know, the country bumpkins. In North Korea, you have what is called a, you have a political caste system called Songbun. You have the elite class, the wavering class, and the hostile class. You don't have hostile class kids up on the DMZ. You probably don't even give them rifles because they're too dangerous politically. The kids along the DMZ are probably mainly elite class kids. And you can imagine as they're getting things broadcast at them, the South Koreans were very clever. Most of their propaganda broadcasts were K-pop, Korean popular music. You know, songs like, we're good brothers, we love you in the North, and uh, let's unify and have a great time together and be economically well off. And you can imagine some of those North Korean elite soldiers had cell phones, and they're calling back to Pyongyang and saying, guess what I just heard? The guys in the South don't hate us, they love us. That's like a virus spreading into North Korea. Kim couldn't let that happen. So what happens? This is so serious, he mobilizes his military countrywide, insists on negotiations, and in two days makes an agreement. You can tweak Kim Jong-un. When do you ever get an agreement with North Korea in two days? We've negotiated at times for years and not even gotten an agreement. Okay, so how do we apply these? Well, the first thing you've got to realize is he's been building his nuclear program because he sees the benefits of that being greater than the damage that's caused by economic sanctions. So the benefits here outweigh the costs he's suffering. We've got to change that. Now, in part, you change that by making the economic sanctions bigger 
But the key, I believe, is you need to use information to undermine his benefits. So let me give you a simple example. Last year, President Trump put North Korea on the terrorism list, you know, saying they were a terrorist country. The North Korean media admitted that, but they said there was no justification to it. So I believe we should be transmitting into North Korea. Well, wait a minute. Kim Jong-un had his older brother killed in an overseas airport in a public setting with civilians all around using a banned chemical weapon. Exactly what of that wasn't terrorism? Now, that's an important message, which is going to undermine Kim a little bit, but it is the perfect psychological operation because what it will do is cause some real angst among the elites. Starting in 2010, when Kim Jong-un was defined as the successor for North Korea by his father, he started killing any of the elites who knew his older brother. He didn't want a competing faction, so he would take and kill them and send their families off to the gulags, the political prison camps. Really nice guy. Um, he did that. By the time he gets to 2013, he's killing his uncle and his uncle's family. There really is not much of a faction. So if you make that kind of broadcast into North Korea, the first thing the elites are going to say is, really? He had a brother? I didn't know that. The next thing they will discover is, of course, that Kim, Kim Jong-nam, the brother, was a legitimate son of Kim Jong-il's wife. And Kim Jong-un was a bastard son of Kim Jong-il's mistress. Not so good for his deification campaign. And remember, Kim Jong-un is supposed to be the god of North Korea. Um, but then it gets worse because his mother was born in Japan. That really doesn't fly in North Korea. But it gets worse his grandfather was a Japanese collaborator in World War II. So you can transmit those kinds of things. And what you're trying to do, he thinks nuclear weapons are protecting his regime's survival. We could use information to undercut that. And we should be. Now, you might say, well, but it's going to take years for information to change people's opinion. I have another idea. The other idea is we know North Koreans love South Korean soap operas. South Korean soap operas show a lifestyle these people will never have. I mean, it is a capital offense to watch a soap opera from South Korea. And all kinds of elites do it all the time in North Korea, according to the reports we get. They love them. So why aren't we making a soap opera on the life and times of Kim Jong-un? Showing his food, his wine, his women, his purges. Think of what that would do to his deification campaign. But that's one that you could really leverage. You could tell him, you have one year to make a treaty with us on your nuclear weapons. If it is not completed by March 31st, 2019... This soap opera gets made. Now, in the coming year, we're going to do everything we can to make sure this is as accurate historically as possible. 
We'll talk to defectors and we'll talk to Chinese businessmen to make sure we've got this right. No propaganda. Doesn't have to be. And if you don't cut a treaty with us, hey, it's going to get made. You can imagine, Kim Jong-un, how many of your people will want to see this and what it will do to your reputation. That's undercutting his sense of survival, and that's what you potentially have to trade. So there are lots of other things we can do. The sanctions we can make more effective if the Chinese support us, but there are other things that we can do ourselves. So what are we talking about? Now we've got this time where President Trump is going to meet with Kim Jong-un. The typical concern right now is talk is cheap. I mean, Kim Jong-un has not even told the international community he's ready to give up his nuclear weapons. He told it to South Korean emissaries, who then transmitted that to President Trump. But Kim Jong-un hasn't said it himself. So we need to be pressing him to say that. And then we need to be pressing him to do something. So we start, the commitment he made to the emissaries is no more nuclear missile tests and no complaint about the American exercises so he doesn't have to fire more missiles. I would argue the very first thing we want him to do, let's tell him, if you're really serious about being ready to abandon your nuclear program, Take five nuclear weapons. Give them to somebody outside of North Korea. Now, it has to be one of the five nuclear states in the Non-Proliferation Treaty. I would argue for the most neutral of those, which would be France. Have him give five nuclear weapons to the French. The French will look at them. If they would really work and go on a missile, they're going to say that. And so very much to his advantage he's going to get recognized as a nuclear state. That probably means we get some of the best of his weapons that he's got available. We get rid of five weapons, and we get incredible intelligence if we can get that to happen. There are a bunch of other things that potentially we need to do as well, both to encourage him to do this and guarantees that we want Next, let's get him to go down to 10 nuclear weapons. Doesn't need any more than 10. So go down to that. Hey, we're prepared to trade and do some forms of political uh, diplomatic recognition, perhaps, which North Korea very much wants. And then we eventually get to two interesting terms, maybe a peace treaty along with CVID. That term has been around for over a decade. Com comprehensive verification and irreversible dismantlement of his nuclear program. We want it all gone. The weapons, the production capability, all gone. And that's been the consistent U.S. and South Korean perspective. And now North Korea is asking for CVIG, a comprehensive, verifiable, and irreversible guarantee. Which is to say... He wants a guarantee from America that we will never make a military attack against North Korea. And he wants President Trump to agree to that and have it be binding on all subsequent American presidents. Now, obviously, he doesn't fully understand the American political system. <laughs> but 
That's what they're asking for, plus a whole bunch of other things which have to be worked through. All right. So, key questions we have to think about in all of this. You know, does Kim really need sanctions relief? Why is he asking for this this meeting at this point? Arguably, a lot of people are saying he is in deep trouble financially. His dad, Kim Jong-il, left him about $4 billion, we believe, in overseas bank accounts. According to a South Korean National Assemblyman, he may be out of money by October of this year. If he doesn't have money, he can't pay off his elites, he can't cover the cost of his nuclear program, he's got to get some sanctions relief. We don't know for sure that's a possibility. What happens if Kim Jong-un and South Korean President Moon have a wonderful summit meeting, and then Kim Jong-un goes to the summit meeting with President Trump and walks out of the meeting and says, the problem is with President Trump. He doesn't want peace. He wants war. I'm not going to deal with the guy. Many people in South Korea would believe that. And I don't think that's something we want. So we have to be prepared to deal with that kind of thing. Um, we have to be concerned about North Korea trying to push towards their control of unification. And we do have to ask what a viable peace treaty would look like. All right, let me conclude and just say there are some really competing interests here. U.S., North Korea, China, South Korea. But let me give you the key one. For many years, North Korea has been saying that former Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi was a fool. He gave up his nuclear weapons program in exchange for what he perceived as an American security guarantee. And then what did the Americans do to him when he faced an uprising? We bombed his troops and him too. So you can't trust the Americans. Obviously a foolish thing to do. But isn't that what Kim Jong-un is now saying he's prepared to do? He's going to give up his nuclear weapons in exchange for an American guarantee? You have to kind of wonder if he's really telling us the truth, what's really going to happen there. This is a difficult situation to work in, but my time is up. I'll turn to your questions. Wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. Uh, Ambassador Bolton is going to be the National Security Advisor. Is he aware of everything you have just discussed? And what do you think about his actions in the future, his advice rather to the president? Okay. Um, Ambassador Bolton uh, is a very capable individual, and he is going to get very good briefings from State Department, the intelligence agencies, his own staff, who are really good people. So he's going to get a lot of good advice. Uh, the question is, how creative is everybody going to be? Because solution to this has got to be pretty creative to come. I mean, coming up with the right information operations and so forth. You know, America is a wonderful country in terms of our advertising capabilities. But when do we ever use any of that in international relations? Not very much. And so there's got to be a little bit of a change in the kind of approaches taken. He may be able to do that. Uh, I look forward to uh, hopefully seeing that happen.
while it's impossible to know, of course, but uh, what do you think the chances are of a meaningful progress on negotiations within the next year? I mean, um, most of the South Koreans I talked to this week would argue that they think the chances are really good. I'm a bit more skeptical um, because I look at the history and when has North Korea ever done what they promised to do? Um, not a great deal. Um, according to the senior elites I've talked to, they say North Korean culture says that whenever you're in a competitive situation, you get the best agreement you can, and then the smart player cheats as much as he can. Um, and the dumb one doesn't cheat. Um, so, so there's a cultural bias there. We're just going to have to give it an effort. And uh, I think President Trump doesn't want a big war. Uh, I don't want a big war. And negotiation is the alternative. Hi. The Russians are not present here. Is there any chance that they have been providing technical assistance to the ICBM program? And second, would they seek to undermine the activities that the rest of these people might be trying to come to? Sure. You'll remember that in the early 1990s, at the end of the Cold War, there were a lot of Russians who were in jobs like nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles who were suddenly out of jobs. And the U.S. made a significant effort to try and take care of those people so they didn't go to places like North Korea. Um, according to some of the defectors I've talked to, some of them did. Uh, a bunch of nuclear weapons scientists, a bunch of ICBM scientists, not ballistic missile, but ICBMs in particular. Don't know for sure. I can't confirm it. I've only got one source there. Uh, but there's been, and probably that was not government supported. Those were just people looking for jobs. Now, Russia did stop a whole plane load of scientists who are going to North Korea from going there in that time period. So we've got some indication the government didn't want it to happen. On the other hand, we know how Russia feels about the United States now. Um, North Korea has traditionally only had international internet access through China. That was all. Except in the last year, Russia added that access for North Korea as well. That makes it more difficult for us to block the Internet or follow the Internet uh, because of the Russian action. So eh, hard to tell what Russia is going to do. What type of uh, anti-ballistic missiles do we have and what are we developing to protect ourselves? So the typical missiles we talk about, the Patriot missile system is a close-in missile system. Uh, intercepts within about 25 kilometers. We have the THAAD system, which has about a 200-kilometer range. So uh, this is the system we put uh, a year or so ago in South Korea, and the Chinese were saying, you're going to shoot down our missiles with that. Well, the only missiles it would shoot down were missiles aimed at South Korea. It doesn't have range to cover any place else. So that's limited. There is then the SM-3 system, which is on Navy destroyers and cruisers. That will reach out much further out of the atmosphere to intercept. Um, but if you're in South Korea and they're fire, or if you're in North Korea firing into South Korea, you don't have to leave the atmosphere to hit South Korea. So while it's got a long range, it's got to be something lofted like to the U.S. or to Japan. Um, so there are some real trade-offs there. 
Those kinds of systems exist. We've worked on an airborne laser system before, but that's not currently as a major development. And those are some of the trade-offs. And I should say about the Chinese, the Chinese carried out major economic warfare against South Korea because of the THAAD system, the one deployed in Korea. Um, roughly 20 to $30 billion, we believe, that economic uh, damage to South Korea, which is roughly the North Korean GDP per year. Um, they did that claiming that, of course, having THAAD in South Korea was extraordinarily destabilizing in the region. Except the Chinese have an almost identical system called the HQ-19, which sits on the peninsula between Pyongyang and Beijing. Um, then they said, well, but it's really the radar. That's an over-the-horizon radar. And our HQ-19 doesn't have an over-the-horizon radar. Eh, except China's got two over-the-horizon radars pointed at South Korea. I say we've got a problem with our information operations because we never say those things. We never call the Chinese hypocrites on those kind of points. And we really need to be. What is the bottom line for China on North Korea? What do they really want? What does China want North Korea to do? Mm -hmm. What is correct behavior there? Sure. Um, I was at a conference in Seoul about four years ago, and we went off to small lunches of about 20 people each. In my lunch was the former president of the Chinese National Defense University. Uh, and we were talking about some of these kinds of issues then in an earlier version. When we got done, as we're walking back to our bus, he grabs me and pulls me off and says, you got to understand that the leadership in Beijing is totally tied up on this issue. There are some who love North Korea, and there are some who hate North Korea. He says, this will not be resolved soon. But he says, the direction is very clear. It's in the direction of not supporting North Korea. What is China concerned about? During the 1990s, there was a huge famine in North Korea. Roughly 3 million people, we believe, starved to death out of a population of 20 million, despite the fact that the regime had the money to buy food outside but chose to spend it on other things. Um, the Chinese suffered a major infusion of North Korean refugees during that famine. And the Chinese strong preference is something less than zero refugees crossing their border. Bruce, uh, I want to bring you back to uh, the, the missile defense area. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that the Aegis system does have some amount of boost phase capability, boost phase intercept capability. We did... The last administration canceled the laser program. Maybe it deserved to be. I don't know. But wouldn't it be a good part of our overall strategy on this thing, since it probably isn't going to get solved in the next few months? It may take years to really get serious about being able to undermine his ballistic missile program with the capability to get at him right after he launches them. That's right. I mean, it would be ideal. If somebody's going to launch a ballistic missile at you, you know, the missile goes up and then it comes down. Most of our intercepts today are when it's at the top or when it's coming down. What Don is suggesting is as the missile goes up, it's better to shoot it down. It's not going as fast. It's an easier target. It's usually a big target, a missile rather than a warhead. 
but also it's over the enemy territory. So, you know, if the warhead comes off and falls to the ground and explodes, it's on his territory, not ours. Assuming there's an agreement, mm -hmm. what might an agreement look like? Mm. Might it be detailed or no details but to be worked out or some combination of both? Okay. So the question is, if there's an agreement with North Korea, should it be detailed or not detailed? Our experience is when something's not detailed, that gives him maximum slack for violating the agreement. You know, he can interpret it the way he wants to. So you want detail in the agreement. You want to say you will eliminate five nuclear weapons on September 1st, another five on March 1st. You want the numbers to be quite specific, and then you need to have verification. So think about it. Well, give you some background. One of the defectors I've been talking to said in 1990, as Kim Jong-il was coming up in authority from his dad, he decided that they should show the Americans the Yongbyon nuclear plant because they figured that would draw all of the American attention. And they built five other nuclear facilities that they tried to hide, expecting that the Americans wouldn't catch them, or at least most of them. So from the perspective of trying to deal with this, we've got to be able to do what are called challenge inspections. I've got to be able to say, I think there's a place over here in this city in North Korea. I want to go see it. And I don't want to see it in a year. I want to see it today. Because then you can go and check those places out and not give them time to move everything. Um, so there are a lot of those kind of details. And then the other piece is they violate the agreement. What's the punishment? What are you going to do? Now, you may not put that in the agreement, but you better have a clear idea. And this is one of those areas where you don't want to keep secrets. Sometimes you have to tell the adversary what you're going to do if you want to deter him. So thank you, everybody, for your insightful questions. And Bruce, thank you so much for your remarks and your insight. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.